Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. To kick this one off, we're going to backtrack a little bit, revisit last week's episode, because I have another correction to make, and then I wanted to revisit one of the topics briefly, because some other information was pointed out to me. First off, I had two shots to get it right, and I boffed both. The Lampropelma species Borneo black that I had to go back and do a little disclaimer on the beginning of the video to explain that it was Lampropelma nigerimum arboricola. I have such a hard time with that one. Well, I was wrong on both accounts because it was another update, which I did read about and plan to write a video on and completely spaced it and completely 100% forgot even it, it existed. So I feel like a dingus now, but a huge thank you to Tank, uh, Tank McCoy for pointing that out for me. He came on the my Facebook page and said, hey, by the way, buddy, it's it's been changed. And I do appreciate that, Tank, because I would have really felt like an idiot had this been discovered way later on, at least now while it's fresh and the people are listening, I can correct it so you guys get the right information. So the name should be Formingo Chylus Arbor Ricola, not Lampropelma nigerumum arbor ricola as i had said in the other one so I, again i apologize for that i try so hard to give good information and it, nothing is more cringeworthy to me than to find out i mispronounce them i did years ago i did this with h or nnc there i go i referred to him by the old genus holotheli instead of neo holotheli and that was really embarrassing so again thank you so much and for anyone out there if i ever misspeak or use the wrong genus or I'm not updated on something, please feel free to correct me immediately. I will thank you profusely because for me, it's it's about getting the right information out there. And when something like this happens to get it earlier is much, much better than have it out there for a while and get called on it way later on. So thank you for that. And the second thing I just want to touch base on very quickly about the whole Billie Eilish thing, a couple people chimed in afterwards and they were right. I didn't mention the video she did for You Should See Me in a Crown, which I actually love the song, but I, the video was cringy to say the least because it's her with a bunch of spiders on her. And there is a scene in it where she opens her mouth and a tarantula crawls out. Now, although I thought that was obviously not a great message to send, I assumed that it was CGI. Then I heard a rumor that she had done it for real, but I couldn't find anything on it. So I just didn't address that one. But a couple folks pointed out that that was probably even a worse example than her appearance on that show. So Stephanie Parente and Mark Porto both, Stephanie actually was kind enough to come on and send me the link to the actual behind the scenes footage of them loading the spider into her mouth and then her opening the mouth and blah, and the spider crawls out, which has to be one of the stupidest things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, in the video, I get where they were going and I, I do have an art background. I do get imagery. I... I get that the young lady obviously likes spiders, isn't afraid of spiders, but that's ridiculous because God forbid, we know, I, I work with teens and I know how impressionable they can be. Obviously, she's a huge super mega star right now in the music business. People watch her videos and I just cringe when I think of kids going out there going, I want to get a tarantula just like Billie Eilish and watch, I can put it in my mouth and let it climb out like her because you know somebody's going to try it. And that's all they need is to get bitten on the tongue or get a throat full of hairs. It, what a nightmare. So incredibly irresponsible. I mean, I get, I think probably in her mind, She's like, look it, I like spiders, they're cool, they're not scary, and, and it makes her even cooler by default, I'm assuming, I don't know, 
But unfortunately, that sends such a terrible message to the kids out there that you can play with them like that. I mean, that's really, it's, it's like abusive. You stuck the thing in your mouth for crying out loud. Nothing should be, <laughs> no animal should ever end up in your mouth. That's kind of like, a, this should be like the golden rule of pet keeping, keep animals out of your mouth. So anyway, they both brought up great points. The fact that that is probably even more damaging. And I would agree because her fit, you know, handling the GBB, it, it's handling. A lot of us don't agree with handling, but it's still something a lot of people do and so it's iffy but i think everybody in the hobby i, I would like to think or the, we'll say 99.9 percent of people out there that have any experience in the hobby would probably recognize and warn people against the that you don't put a tarantula in your mouth so stephanie and mark again thank you so much i agree completely that is ridiculous and we don't need people being brought into the hobby with imagery like that that's just going to start things off you know talk about being afraid of a, a high profile bite imagine somebody accidentally catch a hair a mouthful of the hairs and it goes down their throat or god forbid the spider bites them or they accidentally swallow it there's a million disgusting things and terrible things that could happen there so thanks for bringing that up absolutely right and i would say unfortunately billy eilish although i'm sure she probably I'm sure she probably will bring some people into the hobby through her antics. It's sending a terrible, terrible message, and we really don't need that kind of publicity. All right, so moving on to what will be the meat of this podcast, we're going to talk a bit about Kilobrocky species. Now, just a heads up, this will probably end up being a bit of a shorter podcast because once again, I have a cold. This has been the absolute worst year for getting sick for me that I can ever remember, honestly. Um, I teach and you're always around germs, but usually I have a really good immune system. And if I'm lucky, I get hit with a, a small cold once a year or so, but it's been a rough year. I think part of it's the stress. But anyway, I'm going to try to get as much of this out as I can. We'll go We'll, we'll go by you know, how well I feel. If I'm feeling good, we'll keep going a little bit because I do have a couple other smaller topics lined up. If not, this may be it. We'll see how it goes. So anyway, Kilo Brockies. I was really glad because I posted up a video recently on YouTube featuring my Kilo Brockies fimbriatus. And I love the genus. My It's one of the ones that I would like to eventually get all the species that are available. My first was the Kilo Brockies guangziensis that I got probably about six or seven years ago. It was uh, one of my first old worlds. Well, I think it was one of my lar first larger old worlds because I bought her as a three-inch sexed female. And that was back in the time where I was trying to find females. I was impatient to grow them up and loved this spider. And it, it got me into looking into other ones. Fimbriatus was the first one I ever saw. I'm, I still remember it. It was when I first was looking into getting into the hobby and I was making a list of the species that I thought I might like to get. And I saw a picture of the Fimbriatus on Jamie's website. And I was like, this spider is gorgeous. Look at this thing. Well, then I did a little reading on it and realized, nope, I was not ready for that yet. I, you know, I had already figured out the difference between old worlds and new worlds and beginner, so-called beginner species and advanced species and realized this one was burrowing and needed moist substrate, which I hadn't done anything with that yet. And I just had my, at that point, I'd only kept my G. rosea and my A. Simani that had passed years before. So I didn't have any experience in that. And they all talked about everything I read, talked about how aggressive they were and nasty they were. So I was like, man, beautiful spider, but I'm not going to be ready for one of those for quite some time. So it was one of those ones that for several years I just ignored because it was that species. And I think the other one I did this with was the H. maculata, which was another one I identified as one I wanted to keep very early on. And because of the fact I'd read terrible things about it, it just got pushed so far to the back of my mind that I had spent years in the hobby before I was like, oh man, I'm totally ready for one of these guys. So the Fimbriatus, I finally got, I think I got this one from Fear Not Tarantulas. I saw that she had them like, oh, finally I can pick one up as a little sling. And now hopefully a female, she's looking rather large and I've had a couple people and I appreciate it 
chime in saying that they're males matured at around that size. So it should be, if it was a male, it should have already matured male already. I've not been able to get a molt from it and I've not kept other species. So it's not one I can just look at and go, yep, that's a female. But some of the people that saw the video seem to believe it's a female. I'm hoping it's a female, especially seeing I just rehouse it into a beautiful new bioactive enclosure. And I'd hate to have it be a mature male and have that enclosure have to be redone so soon. Anyway, she's doing great. Posted up. You know, the videos had a lot of people respond, say they love the species and everything, which I love because this is, I think Kilobrachis is one of those genera of tarantulas that get demonized quite a bit. They're up there with the pokies, you know, the the OBTs, the ones that when you talk about and when people start talking about quote unquote aggressive tarantulas, usually Kilobrachis species are thrown in there. And to make it clear, because I don't ever want to send a message, I don't ever want to go over to one side to the point where I set people up for failure or for tragedy. They do have a potential, they have... Obviously, they're old world species. They have a very nasty bite, very potent venom that cannot be overlooked. They can be defensive. I've talked to people. One of the things that came out when I posted that video is a couple of people came forward and said, oh, mine is a complete demon. You know, you catch her out. She's slapping everything. I have to kind of carefully open her cage and toss Cricket in and run away. And I think one guy said that was the dirtiest cage in the house because he's afraid to open it, which is obviously not a good thing. So there are specimens out there. And, and this can go with any tarantula you keep, any species of tarantula you keep. There are going to be specimens out there that are, quote unquote, We'll use the word nasty, and I use that in a nice way, but defensive, extra defensive. They're, they are, and again, it's not because they're evil and want to kill you. It's because they are afraid. They find themselves, a lot of the times when you have a tarantula that's going to be defensive, it's going to be caught out in the open, or it's going to have set itself up in a way, or you have set it up in a way that allows it to feel, or enables it to feel exposed. So when you open up to do just basic husbandry, it feels like you're reaching into its, its that's the spider's domain, that's the spider's burrow, so to speak. And when you're reaching in there doing something, it's going to defend itself the same way that if you were in the wild and you stuck your hand down a tarantula burrow, you would expect to get bitten. So I think we always need to keep that in mind. Some will dig, some won't. The ones that don't dig, and I've heard instances uh, when I posted about my Fimbriatus, a couple of people came forward and said, listen, I gave it a starter burrow, I gave it a hide, I gave it all the things it would need to create you know, its own burrow. It didn't, it stayed right on the surface, and as a result, I kind of have a more defensive spider. And that is a risk you take with these guys. But I think that one of the things we always need to keep in our minds is that there are many ways to mitigate the risks, you know, using deeper, deeper enclosures, starting them with pre- started burrows so that it hopefully encourages them to dig. Being careful during our rehousings. I just posted up a video with me rehousing my El Crotalis and the El Crotalis while we were getting out of there went into a threat pose and I had some people comment, you know, ooh, why didn't you stop here? Because she wasn't completely out of control yet. I could tell that I could get her out and into the new enclosure without much of an issue and there was no place for her to go once I had her cupped. Even if she started slapping in there, she was contained. I could have just dropped that whole thing in the enclosure, tipped the catch cup over, put the cover on and let her go. She would have been fine. So there are a lot of things we can do to mitigate those risks. But I do think that sometimes we put too much of an emphasis on the fact that they are quote unquote defensive, aggressive. I hate when people use it. I've mentioned this before. Evil. The majority of folks that chimed in on that video were, you know, for lack of a better term, connoisseurs of that genus, and they love the species. And some of them said, yeah, I've got some a little more spunky than others, but overall, they're very easy to deal with if you know what you're doing. And I think that's what we need to make very clear that yes, there is the risk of bite, you know, if, if you're not careful, but that should be easily mitigated 
by using safe techniques, by practicing, by being ready for it. That's a big one too. So I don't want anybody to think when I talk about these species uh, that I'm downplaying what they can do. I'm not. And it's always in the forefront of my mind whenever I'm doing a rehousing. Later on, Billy and I are going to be rehousing a Pisolotheria regalis. It's my old girl. She's about eight years old or so. And this is one of the species that was mentioned, you know, I've heard mentioned before as being quote unquote dangerous or risky. And I haven't found them to be that way. I've had three of them over the years, two of them matured out to be male. I have my female. I've spoken to many other people. They're one of those species that people keep as beginner, you know, pokies is what I like to recommend them and vitatas as far as beginner pokies. Are there going to be ones out there that are a little more high strung than others? Yes, but I think overall they're pretty laid back. So it bothers me when they get a bad rep. So what we are going to do now is talk about Kilobrachis husbandry, which is rather straightforward. And it's funny, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to probably cut my own throat here as far as, you know, People chime in to hear me talk about husbandry, and if you pay attention, a lot of the husbandry is very simple and very similar between different species. I mean, you can kind of, if you know how to keep a fossorial Asian species, species, one that requires some moisture, you pretty much, you know how to keep them all. So I don't want to, that's another thing I try to do is demystify some of the husbandry out there and show that it really isn't as complicated as some folks would like you to think. You'll hear folks talk about moving into keeping the old world fossorial species. And I just don't find it to be as complicated as it's sometimes made out to be. I do think that moisture, people read about humidity. They read about moisture. They freak out and think, and I remember going through this myself. This is very in the forefront of my mind as far as I can remember the stress I got when I first started keeping some of the, I believe the first one might have been my Kilobrachis. No, the first one was my Ophilopinus, the first moisture-dependent species I kept. And I remember obsessing over the moisture. I kept dumping water, dumping water in, and I probably overdid. So let's get this rule right out of the way right now. And I think if you abide by this one, you're going to have a much easier time. The trick to keeping the moisture-dependent fossorials, and this I, again, I don't want people thinking I'm going off on a tangent here because this is going to lead into the husbandry care for Kilobrachis. The trick to keeping these guys, you want the lower levels to remain moist, but the upper levels can dry out a bit. And I think that's what freaks people out. And that's what used to freak me out. Because what I would do is I would start off with moist substrate. I'd go in, I'd pull it out. I'd open up the enclosure and go, oh, the top's dry. Oh no, oh no. So I'd start dumping water in. Well, what's happening is that water's trickling down. So those bottom layers are staying really, really wet, which you don't want it overly wet. You want it moist. And then the top layers are wet and you get what is a kind of stuffy, dank enclosure. You don't want that. You want the top layer to dry out a bit because that keeps the molds that you don't want and the mushrooms and stuff from forming. It keeps it, it, the top staying dry creates a better atmosphere. Now, obviously, if you're doing bioactive, you do have to moisten those top layers every once in a while. If you're using springtails or isopods, they require moisture, but you can put things in there. Like I like to put little pieces of cork bark, little pieces of sticks, you know, stuff for them to hide behind when it dries out a bit underneath those, the cork bark underneath the leaf layer will probably stay moist enough to keep them sustained and keep them happy and keep them alive. And then you, when you add water, obviously you've missed it down, you pour it. I like to do the make it rain thing. I make it rain, let it run down the sides of the enclosure so that the bottom stays moist, but the top can dry out. That's the trick. And what you can do is watch, use a container that allows you to see that layer of substrate. When you can see that your layer of substrate, so say I have a container that has five inches 
of moist substrate in. You will start to see little by little that top layer will turn lighter as it dries out. When that top layer gets down, I usually look at about, I try to keep about a half to three quarters of, uh, quarters of it moist at all times. When I see it start getting below that, that's when I go and I add more moisture. Now, in between, I will, when I go and do feedings, you know, once a week or so or once every week and a half, I will pull it out. I will just put some water on the top of the surface too to keep my, especially for my bioactives, to water the plants to keep the feeder insects well hydrated. I will go and make it rain a little bit, but I will tell you that surface water, if you don't pour it down the corner so it seeps between the enclosure and the dirt, generally will sit on top for a little bit and then dry right out. So it's just kind of temporary. But the part you want to worry about is keeping those lower levels moist, especially for your fossorial species. Even if they don't dig, the release of that water into the air as that substrate starts to dry out helps keep the spider at the, you know, I hate to use the term, we won't use humidity. It gives the spider the moisture it needs. So don't freak out. That's the biggest thing I see people worrying about. I had somebody hit me up with photos the other day and they're like, listen, I just got, I think it was the Ophilopinus. And they were like, I want to make sure this is moist enough. And I looked and it just looked like a container of mud. It was terrible. So I had to try to explain, you can let the top dry out. Just watch that band on the side and don't let that band get too low because what the spider can do is it'll dig down to the moisture level it needs. And I'll tell you, one of the tricks I've used when I want to make sure that my fossorials will burrow after rehousing, especially the, the moisture dependent ones, is I set up the enclosure ahead of time. I allow the top layer to dry out a bit. And then I do my starter burrow that goes right into the moist substrate. And a lot of them will go to that starter burrow. They will sense the moist substrate. They'll go down there and start digging right away because that's what they want. So it's a nice little trick to make sure they dig. Doesn't always work. Uh, that people, Tom, I did exactly what you told me. It didn't work. It doesn't work all the time. They are individuals, but I've noticed a lot of the time that will work for me. So let's kick it off with Kilobrachy slings. Here we go. Obviously, the, the easiest thing to put them in right off the bat, especially if it's the teeny tiny ones and you see a lot of them out there, they're like half an inch. And mind you, when you picture half an inch, I will tell you, picture what you, right now in your mind, a little game, picture what you think a half an inch spider is for those of you that haven't kept them as long. What you're picturing is probably a lot bigger than what it looks like. So for example, my O. Philippinus babies that I put out there, I measured several of them. The smallest one was a hair under a half inch. The other ones were in between a half inch and three quarters of an inch around there. I mean, I got a good measurement at the ruler, uh, the tape measure right next to them. And I had several people go, oh man, I didn't realize these were quarter inch. They're not. The, the spiders, when you're not measuring the body, this is DSL, diagonal leg span. Spiders tend to, we picture them being a lot bigger than they are. When you think three quarters inch, what you're probably thinking of is an inch, an inch, and a quarter. And I've found that to be true from myself, even though I've worked with slings for a long time, I'm getting better at it. So something to keep in mind, but for the really teeny tiny ones, the dram bottles work great. What you do is you put some moist substrate in there, give them a little bit of moss up top, give them a nice starter burrow. What I like to do is take a pencil and make a little hole right down one of the sides. And usually they'll retreat right to it as slings and start forming their burrow and webbing around the top of that, which is exactly what you want. And then again, the trick is with the slings, and this is where people freak out. You want to keep it moist, but not, you know, it's damp, not over the top wet though. That's very, very important. And the way you do that is I've had some people tell me they use syringes and you take a syringe full of water and you put it down the side of the enclosure. Do not get the spot where their burrow is. I try to do the opposite side. So I locate the burrow, I go to the opposite side and I squirt some water down there. So it goes into the lower levels and keeps those lower levels moist. I use pipettes. People use the syringes work great as well. I've had several 
several people come forward. I did used to have a syringe. I used to do it, and I lost it, and I just got pipettes after that. I ended up buying what I thought was going to be 10 uh, pipettes, and it ended up being 100. So I have a lot of those on hand, but either of those will work. And remember, once again, don't worry about You can spray the top a little bit. It's good sometimes if you've got some sphagnum moss in the top to keep that moist. But again, you don't want swampy conditions. You don't want it overly moist, especially because with most dram bottles, it's tough to get cross-ventilation. You usually poke some holes in the little softer plastic cap, and that keeps them, and it, you know, keeps everything nice and moist inside. So you don't want to over overdo it. Now, as far as feeding is concerned, I found that mine have been great hunters since day one. For the little teeny tiny ones, you may want to use pre-killed. And I, I say this for just about everything because I get I, I hear from a lot of people who have slings, and they go, I don't get it. This thing isn't eating. And and I'll ask them to send me a picture of like the sling and the prey item. And a lot of times they're putting in larger prey items. So if you've got a half inch sling and you're dropping in half inch crickets, there's a very good chance it's going to register that as a threat and not a food source. And it's not going to tackle it down. So if you're using something that's a little bit bigger or if you're worried that it might be too big, kill it. Kill it and drop it in. Crush the cricket's head, kill it, drop it at the top of the burrow. They will come out and scavenge feed. They usually find it pretty quickly. Best time to do it is before you go to bed at night when the lights go off because that's when they will go out and venture and hunt and they'll find that cricket out there. They'll eat it. You'll know that it's been eaten because chances are they will move it and drag it closer to the burrow. And then the next day, you just remove any uneaten prey. You can also use mealworms. I like mealworms for the really tiny slings because you can keep them in the fridge for a while. You cut them up into little sections. You drop a little section in, come in the next day, remove it if it's not gone. And that works well for me. If you're going to feed them teeny tiny stuff, I just went into the flightless fruit fly thing. I don't encourage the flightless fruit flies unless you have them on hand and you're already feeding something. So a lot of folks are keeping true spiders, jumping spiders, mantids, things of that nature where they have to use those. And I totally understand which case it makes sense if you've already got them on hand to use them. In which case you want to refrigerate or freeze them beforehand and then... I use tweezers because I always use tweezers all the time, but I've had other people come forward and they're absolutely right. They'll make like a little funnel and use the funnel to just kind of shake in a couple of fr- flightless fruit flies for them so that they can eat and they don't have to worry about the tweezers trying to pick them up by their wings like I do, like something out of the Karate Kid. So that's probably the best way if you're going to use flightless fruit flies. But for most people, small crickets, the pinhead B-lat roaches. I've used those for years. I have a B-lateralis colony of roaches, and I love the little teeny ones are great for the little teeny tiny slings because you can get they're super small when they first come out, and they run around, and the little slings seem to love them. So I found the Kilobrachis. They will eat live prey as long as it's not overly huge very early on and have no issues with it. I've kept Kilobrachis discolus. The Guangxian, since I got older, so I can't comment on that. But then I had the Fimbriatus, and those all ate really well. And what they will do is they'll pop out of the little holes, they'll grab it, pull it back in the hole, eat, and usually they'll bring the remains out. Now, if you're starting off with a larger Kilobrachi sling, the 16-ounce or 32-ounce deli cups will work fine. I will say I've noticed, as I've spent more time in the hobby, our standard is usually a 16-ounce deli cup for a terrestrial, a 32-ounce deli cup for a fossorial or arboreal species. And I found that that's a good kind of guideline, but I found that with if I'm starting with a smaller sling, even if it's fossorial, I'm going to put it in the 16 ounce because that's going to give it plenty of room to dig and it's going to allow you to keep track of it better. And it's going to allow the sling to find food better because I have had some issues with using the 32 ounce deli cups when you fill them up full of dirt. So say I take a 32 ounce deli cup, I don't know, they're about five and a half, six inches tall, and I fill it with four 
inches, five inches of dirt, that sling will go all the way down to the bottom and then close things off and won't be able to sense the prey above it, especially smaller slings. Larger ones, it's not going to be a big deal. So if you're starting with a smaller sling and you want to do the deli cup, I would encourage you to do 16 ounce, leave a little space up top, but just know you're going to probably be rehousing it sooner than later because once it hits like the one and a half inch mark, it's probably going to start webbing up top and that's going to give you that situation where you get the jack in the box effect where you peel off the top, it peels up the webbing and your spider goes nuts. If you're starting with a larger one, definitely start it in a 16 ounce. So if I'm getting a one inch sling, one and a half inch, you know, one and a quarter, one and a half inch sling around there, I would put it in the 32 ounce deli cup. I would leave some space. Again, the good thing is, and I've mentioned this in one of my rehousing videos, the last one I did about the fossorial species, especially the ones that will web if they're not able to dig, some will dig and web. So you always want to make sure that when you fill up that container full of dirt, you leave yourself a few inches on the surface. They're not going to, the fall damage shouldn't be an issue. If they crawl at slings, when they're slings, there's not as big of a risk of them getting hurt. They can fall from much larger heights than their adult counterpart compared to their, you know, leg span and not have any issues whatsoever. So don't be afraid to leave a few inches up there because what's going to happen is A, it's going to dig up all that dirt and pile it on the top, which is going to make that dirt level go closer up to the top of the enclosure. And then as it puts on more size, you know, when it's getting to that point where it's like, hmm, I should probably rehouse it soon, you will see that it'll start webbing more on the surface. If it doesn't start webbing right off the bat, some of them will web right off the bat. And if that dirt is too high to the top of the enclosure, that's what creates that jack-in-the-box effect where your spider has webbed up the whole top right up to the top of the enclosure. And now every time you open the enclosure, you rip all that webbing off. It's like ripping off the top of their house and then they're left to exposed and they're left defensive. So always plan for them to bring up the substrate. And if they don't bring up the substrate, if they're not digging, plan for them to use the cover that I hope you're going to provide, you know, a couple fake plants, fake leaves and such up top give them some cover for anchor points and leave them some space for that webbing. So little tip, if you're using the, I, and I've done this, this has been years that I've been using the 32 ounce deli cups. And it took me a while to figure this one out because I've had many situations where I filled it with too much dirt. You know, more dirt's better, right? And you fill it with dirt. Next thing you know it, they dig, they've got the dirt all the way up to the top of the enclosure. You end up with a lot of times with the fossorials, you don't see them often and you can't gauge how big they are. So you have a situation where suddenly you pull off the top of the enclosure, and I think I talked about this with one of my H gigas. I pulled the top off the enclosure. That thing was sitting right on the top. Like we're talking right as close to the top as you could get, and it was like three and a half inches across, scared the heck out of me, startled the spider. That could have been a bad situation. So leave some space. So smaller slings, dram bottles, larger slings, 16, 32 ounce deli cups. If you use 16, plan on rehousing them sooner than later. If you use a 32 ounce, leave some room. You can probably keep them in there till they're two and a half, even three inches. There's that molt where it suddenly they're like almost too big for the enclosure and then they're way too big for the enclosure. So something to keep in mind. They're great eaters, as I mentioned earlier, and they grow rather quickly. So it, it Plan on, depending on what you put them in, plan on doing your first rehousing around the six-month mark. And again, you it depends on your feeding schedule. It depends on how hot it is. Mine are kept in the 70s. And I would say with the first ones, with the dram bottle, I ended up moving them probably, actually probably closer to the eight-month mark or so. But that's just a, a gauge to, you know, give you kind of a around the six to eight-month mark. Start thinking about what you're going to put them in next. Now, for... The juvenile enclosures, it's up in the air. And I hate throwing out sizes because there is no standard size for any of this. You ask five, ten different keepers, you're going to get a bunch of different answers. I think something along the, you know, 
a gallon size is usually good because that's going to give them some play, you know, some room to grow. It's going to give you some time before you have to do the next rehousing. And something around a gallon, whether it be a gallon mainstay container or one of the Sterilite plastic containers, I've used those. I have ones that are a gallon to, I believe, six quarts or so, something around that size. And it, feel free to experiment with what works for you. But what you need is something that's going to provide enough depth for them to be able to dig in. It's going to, it's going to provide enough depth for several inches of moist substrate. That's what you need. And again, to harken back to what we said earlier, you want to make sure there's not just enough depth to put in, you know, five or six, you know, I, Anywhere from four to six inches of substrate. Again, I hear a lot of people say more is better. I've, I've had people say, oh, I put mine immediately into something that has nine inches. If you have something that's large enough for nine inches and it has enough space, you could probably just have that be its adult enclosure. I like to give them four or five at that size or so if we're talking about a two-inch to three-inch specimen. But keep in mind, once again, leave space between the top of the substrate and the top of the enclosure. Don't be afraid to, to leave a little vacant area in there for A, it to pull up the dirt that it's going to be digging out, or if it doesn't dig, again, for that webbing. That's incredibly important. Now, when setting them up, you're going to use several inches of moist substrate, you're going to give them a hide, and you're going to give them a starter burrow, meaning you're going to dig a little area out underneath that hide so they have a pre-made burrow that they can continue digging from. And I found that helps a great deal in rehousing. I just did my Kilobrachia species Fimbriata, and it did adapt immediately to that burrow, came out and started doing some webbing on the surface, but it used the pre-dug burrow that I gave it. It also had a unique situation where I plucked its old cork bark out, dropped it right on top in front of the other burrow, and it kind of incorporated that all into it. So with the Kilobrachia species, you also want to make sure you give it plenty of foliage, foliage and cover for anchor points, because even if they burrow, they are likely to come up and do some webbing on the surface, and that gives them something to anchor to. And if they don't burrow, instead of having a spider that's cowering in the corner because it feels insecure, because it feels exposed, if you give it some foliage, that gives it some cover and makes them feel a bit more secure when you open that container so they're not stuck out in the middle of nowhere. It also gives them anchor points, which will encourage them to do some of that webbing because they will web up their own burrows if they don't dig or if they aren't provided with one. And I think that's probably the most important tip I can give people, especially starting with larger specimens, is to make sure you give them the room they need, the room up on top on the surface and the room to burrow beneath. That's going to that's gonna give you the best situation for avoiding any nasty confrontations with your animal. So obviously you're going to give them, I like to include sphagnum moss. I've been doing the leaf litter for some of mine. And I'll tell you for folks, if you can find a good supplier of leaf litter, it really does dress up the enclosure. It looks so much nicer overall. I really love this stuff. I use it in the bioactives, but I also started using it in the non-bioactive enclosures just because I like the looks of it. So something to think about giving them multiple hides is not a bad idea either. I've started giving my tarantulas a choice of where to go, which side, because sometimes depending on where the light is in your room, I've noticed they will, some of them will go towards the lights some will go away from the light. So giving them, you know, a couple different options to go to might help them settle in a little bit better. Obviously, this is a moisture dependent species. I encourage you to put a water dish in for everybody. And I have caught mine out drinking before. As a matter of fact, my Kilobrachis guangziensis was out a couple months ago drinking in a water dish. So I do give them water dishes. As far as feeding, once they put on some size, they take down medium, even large crickets, depending on the size of them with no issue whatsoever. 
whatsoever. I usually feed mine once a week. Oh, somebody will ask me, as far as the slings, the slings I feed twice a week because I like to check on them more often and I'm trying to get them out of that sling stage faster. But for juveniles and adults, once a week or sometimes even once every week and a half, although I do check on them in between. So for example, if I'm not going to be feeding them once a week or if mine's pretty fattened up and I don't need to, you know, I don't want to overdo it, what I will do is pull the cage out, change the water dish, you know, add water if needed and pull out any boluses. Now I've found that at this point, mine tend, the slings tend to be ridiculously skittish. And I found that once I hit around the three inch mark, mine have all kind of calmed down. My uh, discless blue, Vietnam blue, was probably the most laid back of the ones I had. Unfortunately, this was one of the casualties of the bad substrate I had a couple years ago. She was a beautiful girl. I rehoused her into a, a, an enclosure because I know some mold. So I pulled her out, rehoused her, and unfortunately, the dirt I used was probably contaminated with herbicide or something. I lost a lot this year, and it's anybody that's listened to the podcast has heard this whole story, and I honestly hate talking about it anymore. But she was one of the ones that got fattened up. I thought she was going to molt and then ended up dying, and it was devastating. She was a beautiful specimen and so laid back. My guangziensis was out the other day. I dropped some crickets. She went at the crickets, crickets ravenously and then just posed for me. I actually threw a picture up on Instagram that got very close to her. She was really laid back, and she had been like that for quite a while. I haven't had that much of an issue. My Kilobrachis species, Electric Blue, a little more skittish. Those guys are a little more crazy, but more, I, I found them more run and hide rather than stand and confront. So for example, the other day I came out and I, in the mornings usually when I catch my guys out because it's just when I flip on the lights and one of them was out in the open and I tried to slide the top of the cage open so I could get a good picture of her and she immediately bolted right to her burrow. It was like blink of an eye, she was gone. My Fimbriatus, I will catch out in the morning. She will sit there for a little bit and kind of lazily go back into her hide. She doesn't bolt as quickly. So they all have their own distinct personalities, but I found that once they hit the three-inch mark, three to four-inch mark or so, mine have calmed down. That doesn't mean yours will, and I want to make that very clear because I I think sometimes it comes across like I'm telling everybody, hey, all of them are going to be like this. No, I've just had really good luck with all of mine. So keep in mind, at that size, they're also going to be a little more to handle as far as rehousings. So as we mentioned before, if you have a specimen, say you're keeping a specimen in a larger container, you got it as a sling, you put it in, say, a quart container or a two-quart container either, and you have some space, you may want to just jump right to adult housing at that point. Now, as far as adult housing, I've got mine right now. I've got my Kilobrachis species Electric Blue is in a 5.5, I believe it's 5.5, 5 to 5.5 gallon enclosure with about 7 inches of substrate or so, 6 or, six or 7 inches of substrate. And she will probably, we'll see how it goes with that. I'm thinking that'll be a good size for her. She has dug a den. She's in the den. She comes out again. I find her out in the morning. My Kilobrachis Fimbriatus, same type of enclosure, 5.5 gallon. And she looks good in that. My Kilobrachis Guangziensis is in an old Sterilite container. I want to get her into something different. She's been spending a lot of time on the surface now. And for usually when the fossorials start coming up to the surface more often, it means they feel a little crowded underneath. So I'm going to try to get her into something larger. I think that this container is probably around four and a half gallons or so. So a little bit on the smaller side. Now that I've seen her out and about, I haven't caught her out and about much at all. And the other day I caught her out. She's a big girl. She's got to go easily six inches, possibly larger. So she's a big beefy girl. I've had her for quite some time. So for adults, again, you need something. And I hate to sound repetitive, but I think part of teaching is to like drive points home and you try to do it in different ways so that some, you know, everybody gets it. But 
you need something that's going to allow enough depth for substrate and some room above it. And it's going to be even more important with an adult specimen because that's going to be, it's most likely it's forever home. And you don't want a situation where the adult has made its forever home. It's dug its burrow and starts webbing on the surface. And you have a situation where it's webbing right to the top of your enclosure. That's going to cause some issues. So you want to, you need a taller one. And I have to admit, if I'm being completely honest here, cause I'm, you know, I, that's why I say I'm not an expert. I don't have all the answers. These five-gallon tanks, one of them looks like it's going to be perfect. She hasn't done much webbing. My Fimbriatus has started webbing quite a bit on the surface, and she also did some digging. And <laughs> the webbing is starting to reach the top of that enclosure. And I planned on keeping her in that until she reached adulthood. She's probably about four inches now or so. She's got a little ways to go. And now I'm looking at a situation where she may web right up to the top, which could cause some issues. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. So it might even be something something closer to a, you know, a 10-gallon tank would be not the actual aquarium, but something around 10 gallons might be better to give them more space up top. And again, same thing if you're setting them up. Starter burrow, maybe two. Cork bark, maybe two. Some sphagnum moss, mix it in there. Throw some around in the burrow, whatever. Throw that around water dish, and then definitely some plants and a hide. Although I will admit in my last enclosure with my Fimbriatus, I did not. I planned on putting plants in there. And what happened was the plant that I planned on using had not rooted up yet. It didn't have its roots. And if I dropped it in there, it would have been dead. So I held off. I will probably add it later, which is not ideal with plants, but this is a pothos and those things seem nigh indestructible. So I'm hoping that it'll actually take really well. So I will, it will eventually have plants later on. Right now it doesn't have them, but it's been webbing up anyway. So it doesn't seem to matter. And with adults, I've personally found that if you give them a little tap before you feed them, you, know, you tap the enclosure. Or what I do is I take all my enclosures out to my dinner table to do feeding, feeding and maintenance. As soon as you pick up and jostle the enclosure, they retreat to their burrows. They're hiding. They don't want anything to do with you. And that's always, I think that's why I've had very good luck without having any issues of them bolting out when I go to do feedings because I never surprise them. They know I'm coming and they disappear. So the trick is to make sure they know you're coming, make sure they have a place to go to. People will ask, can I set mine up terrestrially so I can see them more? I don't believe in that. I, I, people will probably disagree with me. Feel free. I, I I would say there's no right or wrong answer, I guess. But I really do feel like if your spider wants to burrow, your job as a keeper, to keep it correctly, is to allow it the, to burrow, to give it that security. It wants to do that. I don't like preventing them from burrowing. So I would say no. I think that's where a lot of these stories of defensive, aggressive, evil Kilobrachi species came from. Because I know when I was looking up Kilobrachis, when I first saw the Fimbriatus all those years ago, and I went onto YouTube and I'm like, Kilobrachi species. And I found all these pictures of them kept in like the Sterilite shoe boxes with no room to burrow, with webbing going all the way up the enclosure. So they whipped the top off. The, the spider was upset. It's slapping like, oh, look at my defensive, my aggressive spider. And then years later realized, no, you just didn't give it any room. It was like literally like you were disturbing it every time you open that enclosure. So I don't agree with that personally. I People can debate. I've debated it with people before. They're your spiders. Do what you want. If you want a better chance of getting bit, if you want a spider that's anxious all the time, feel free. I just don't feel like I feel like we should always give them and present them the opportunity to burrow should they want to. Now, if they don't, that's the spider's decision. So don't worry about it. I have people that get, I, they get frustrated because they go, hey, I set it up exactly like you said. I gave it all this dirt. It's not using it. It didn't burrow. 
Some won't burrow. Sometimes it's a situation where the substrate isn't right, or sometimes it's just the spider, whatever it may be. Some won't burrow. That's fine. But always give them that opportunity just in case, and then always leave some space up top just in case they decide not to, so you don't have the jack-in-the-box effect. But my adults, they've been very shy. They're great eaters. I have no problem with them. Those are ones you drop in a couple crickets, and if you play your cards right and the crickets hang around the top, I love doing this with the guangzianses. It's webbed up the whole top of the enclosure. So when I drop crickets in, you can see her in the hole start to come out and she'll come out and hunt and grab a couple of them and there's been a couple times I've tried to catch video of it but by the time I got my camera out she grabbed a couple crickets and bolted back into her burrow so I feed mine again usually once a week sometimes once they start to get a little fat I usually ease off to like once every week and a half or so depending and after a molt, I usually give them a dubia because they're you know I want to fatten them up a little bit but then after that I switch to three four five sometimes five crickets and again, don't, I don't believe so much in overfeeding that you can really overfeed them, but they don't, you know, I don't go overboard with the feeding because they do seem to be quite the pig. So I'm guessing if I dropped in 10 crickets, they'd probably eat it. But it depends on, you know, if they're out hunting, they're good. Three, maybe four crickets, sometimes five. Like my Guanzianzas the other night, she was a, she's a big girl. I was actually shocked how large she was. So I dropped in five, four and she took them down. No problem. She webbed them up, made a little cricket burrito and, and, and ate happily. So again, feeding, find a feeding schedule that works for you. I've been saying this in all my videos now is that talk about husbandry that there's no set feeding schedule there's no right or wrong feeding schedule if your animal's healthy your animal's fine some people feed once a month and again the wild they're not going to have access to the food they do that in captivity where they have somebody that's feeding them every week it's when they can catch them so a lot of folks will report that when they see them in the wild they're not nearly as fat as when they are in our as they are in our collections and that's because they they're having to hunt more they're having to rely more on you know the availability of food, not always having food available. So something to keep in mind. So don't, I've had people get on people or email me and go, oh, this guy's only feeding us once a month. Isn't that ridiculous? No, it's not. It's it's probably a decent schedule. As a matter of fact, I could probably feed mine less. Honestly, it's just, I like checking on them more. And it's kind of an obsessive thing that while I've got the cage out, while I'm cleaning bolus, while I'm filling water dishes, I might as well drop a couple crickets in there. If you're feeding them more often, feed them less. That's a good trick. If you're feeding them, you know, once a week, then maybe feed them, you know, two or three crickets. If you're feeding them uh, once a month, maybe five crickets, something like that. But whatever works for you. There's no real rule or, you know, golden standard for feeding them. Just find a, something that works for you and that's healthy for the spider. Now, I had a, a video the other day I posted and it was an older one and somebody came on and went, you didn't, you never told us what humidity to keep them at. And then I had a podcast I did and somebody went, I was surprised you didn't mention humidity. It was obviously people that were newer to the hobby. We don't deal with humidity. I do not measure humidity inside my enclosure. So what we do is we talk about moisture dependent species. This is a moisture dependent species. So all the way from sling to adulthood, you're going to want to make sure that the bottom layers of substrate stay moist. I won't get into that again because we covered it at the beginning of the podcast. Top can dry out bottom can stay nice and moist and you do want to continue that as an adult. I found the best way to do it is you get in there, you make it rain. I have my big water bottle that I burned a bunch of holes into the top of it. So it's like a watering can for a garden. And what I do is I tilt the enclosure and I pour it in a way so that it goes down between the side of the enclosure and the dirt runs down all the way down through the bottom and soaks in those bottom layers. And I'll hit like the four corners or the four sides of it so that it keeps the bottom layers moist, but doesn't necessarily saturate the top layers. I don't want that. And as far as 
quote-unquote ideal temperatures. There are none. There, how's that? Um, you read a lot out there about the ideal temperatures, and I don't prescribe to that. My tarantula room right now, I think, is 78 degrees. It's been a little warmer this year, and I think that's because when the heat kicks on in my house, that room is usually warm anyway, so it gets a little hotter, but it fluctuates between about 76 and 78. Previous winters, it's gone 72 to 74, it's gone down to 68 a couple times. Anything in that band of that we generally refer to as room temperature is fine for these guys. And again, when you talk about tarantula growth, generally warmer the temperatures, faster the metabolism, faster the growth. So if I'm keeping mine in the 70s, I will get a certain growth rate. If somebody's keeping theirs in the 80s, they're going to get a higher growth rate. It doesn't necessarily mean one is wrong, one is right. And I want to make that very clear because I'll have people that get confused about that sometimes like, well, you got to keep them warmer than them. No, it's just, it depends on the time of the year. It gets a little warmer in here sometimes. In the summertime, I do hit 80 sometimes, sometimes 82. Winter, it's a little cooler. Mine grow just fine. I get decent growth rates. So don't obsess over that. The only time I would worry about heating them because I get a lot of people that come on and go, well, what about right now? And, and Understand, it doesn't matter what the outside temperature is. I've had this lately. A lot of people go, well, it's 55 outside right now. Okay, that's great, but what is it in your home? If you're talking mid-60s, mid to high 60s, that's on the lower end, they should be just fine. If they're you know, any lower than that, then you might want to consider adding a little heat to it, and that's something I won't get into right now. But for most people, I think your room, your room temperature, your home's temperature, unless it's really super cold and drafty, should be fine. And again, before trying heat, always try to find a higher shelf somewhere, you can find a huge temperature difference between something that's closer to the floor and something that's closer to the ceiling if you measure it because obviously heat rises. So your baseboards or whatever you have heating your home, that heat rises, it's usually a lot higher, hotter, higher up. So think about adjusting a shelf or putting them a little higher up if that's an issue that you can usually gain you a few degrees right there. So I think that just, I always do these and I have, I just, I don't like keeping detailed notes for any podcast because I want it to be more free flowing, but I do have like a little outline with some points. I think I hit them all. Now, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but my voice is rapidly deteriorating during the course of this podcast, which kind of stinks because I have a video to shoot later. I have to do the intro for that video and on Monday I have to teach and it's my full day where I have a lot of classes. So hopefully I don't lose my voice again because the last time I got sick, I did lose my voice for a bit. It was not fun. So we're probably going to end it here. I did have other things I could talk about, but honestly, I got to make sure I don't completely lose my voice because I got some more work to do today. But hopefully this covers, you know, gives a, a brief overview of Kilo Brockies. They're not that difficult. Main points to take away, keep them moist, give them room to dig, but also allow room for them to web should they web. Great eaters. They're going to grow relatively quickly. They do have a potent bite. You do not want to get bitten by one, but they tend to retreat to their burrows when they're frightened, if at least if you give them a warning. And the only point you're going to really have any issue with them is during rehousing. So it, feel free to watch any of my rehousing videos. The, oh, the only thing I would mention is be prepared to do some digging when you rehouse, especially older specimens, because if they're burrowing, that's a fun rehouse. I mean, those are the ones that they take a little while. And my trick is, I know people use the flood technique where you either pour or dribble water down and try to get them out. If that works for you, great. I'm not going to, I did it once before. I've, I've tried a few times. It's just not my way of doing it. And my way is I will get the, dig up some of the dirt, get, find where the, the tarantula is, dig out the excess dirt, and then carefully dig the dirt out. I found that most of them, if you start digging them up, 
for the majority of the time you're digging them up, will scrunch themselves up in that like stress pose and try to hide from you. And it's usually pretty easy to cup them. If not, if it's not coming out, you can always kind of gently shake the, when you find where the spider is, gently shake the dirt out. The spider will start to come out and you can usually cup it when it gets out of the enclosure. But again, you want to do it inside something, either a bathtub or a much larger plastic container so you have it contained. So when it does get out, you basically prepare that it's going to get out of the enclosure and cup it on the outside. So that's the only other thing I can think to add. So that should about cover it for that. And again, I would love to keep this one going a little bit longer, but I'm going to go drink something. I have my coffee here that I haven't finished, but I'm not sure that's really great for a cold. So as always, thanks to all who take the time to listen. Hope you enjoyed this one. I I will just move the extra topics I had till next week. And again, I think I've explained this before. I usually come in with a list of things I could do. And then we see how time, you know, falls. If I start getting too long-winded with one, sometimes things get bumped the next week. And I was supposed to do this one last week, but I got, I jumped off onto a different topic. So I apologize that for people who are waiting for the Kilo Rockies one and then walked into something about Billie Eilish putting spiders on her mouth and in her mouth and stuff. That's my apologies. But anyway, that'll do it for this one. As always, you can find me on YouTube and I've said hi to, it's really cool because a bunch of folks have been coming over from the podcast checking out the videos now and it's always cool to see you guys over there it's neat it's kind of like we're our own little special club and it's great when you guys pop over to say hello i really do appreciate that obviously thomasbigspiders.com and i'm on instagram i've been doing a lot more posting on instagram lately again that's been kind of my happy place where i just throw up it's nice because i i use it a lot now when i go to show people pictures of my spiders i just hop over to instagram and show them on there and i try to get you know a lot of the colorful ones up but Anyway, that'll do it for this time. Hope you guys all have a great week, and I will catch you next time.